Three, two, one. Happy, Happy New Year. Year. I wish I had like a streamer thing to pop and <laughs> confetti. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, this is a nice little surprise because we didn't think we'd be doing this, but welcome to 2023. Welcome to a working man's pod in 30, WP in 30. WP in 3D if you're watching on YouTube. That's true. That's true. Check us out on YouTube. We do our WP in 30s on video. I'm Dave. This is Alex. And what are we doing new this year? So whole new concept for episodes. Uh, We don't know how many we're going to do throughout the year, but we are going to do the same sort of breakdown that we do for a show, for a concert, for the Grateful Dead studio work. So today we are starting with their debut album, the eponymous Grateful Dead by the Grateful Dead. If you... Or maybe San, Fran- San Francisco's yeah. Grateful Dead. Yeah. Yeah. When you look at what, like, you know, what it's listed on in, you know, the record stores and on Amazon and even on their website, it's just Grateful Dead. But reading what people said about it at the time, a lot of people refer to it as San Francisco's Grateful Dead. And both Phil and Bill uh, reference it that way in their books. So I think we should make a command decision off the top of which way we're going to, which way we're going to go. That's a good idea for me personally. If the band members are referring to it as something, that's probably what we should call it. That's my vote. I'm with you. San Francisco's grateful dead. It is. So today we are going to talk about 1967's San Francisco's grateful dead by the grateful dead. Uh, If you're new to this format, it's a, you know, 30 minute, just quick hitter episode. We release it on video as well on YouTube in case you're into that. And we don't do the things that you typically see in our audio shows with, you know, clips along the way and our regular like bumps and buffers between segments. We just get right into it and it's just 30 minutes of chat. So, so here we go. San Francisco's Grateful Dead released in March of 1967. March 17th, so St. Patrick's Day of 1967, by Warner Brothers Records and Joe Smith. If you've seen the Long Strange Trip documentary, Joe Smith is in it a ton. He does a lot of talking about what the Grateful Dead meant to Warner Brothers, why they signed the Grateful Dead originally. Um, The basic reason is that they saw this thing happening in San Francisco. They could see the movement, you know, all these musicians, all of these artists who were in the Bay Area and doing interesting things in the mid-60s, and Warner Brothers said, we want to get in on that. And so they signed The Grateful Dead. And this was the first the first collaboration between the two. They would stay together um, into the, to the mid-70s, um, and then The Grateful Dead formed their own record label um, for 1973 or 4. I can't remember which. Uh, but Wake of the Flood was the initial release by that record label. So this was a good partnership for a number of years in the late 60s and then into early 70s, and then they went their separate ways. Joe Smith talks a lot in that documentary about how it was a challenge. Uh, This band was not the easiest to work with at this point in time. This record, not so much, but the one that followed was a a real challenge. Um, And we'll get into that when we talk about that record. But today we're talking about San Francisco's Grateful Dead. Should we talk a bit about the year, Dave, 1967? Yeah. As is our custom. Good year for music. 
really good year for music. So what makes you say that off the bat? What's the first um, thing that jumps out to you? Well, uh, Sergeant Pepper jumps out like that's that was for a long time the number one slot in the Rolling Stones top 500 albums of all time um, and still might be. Uh, but, you know, when that is when that year, when that's out, that's a big deal. Yeah. When um, that's the headliner. Right. Yeah. But what else do we got in that year? So when reviewed from 2022, it it is owned by Sgt. Peppers. There's no doubt about that. One of the biggest records of all time one of the most important records in a lot of ways. Um, you know, the Beatlemania had already swept the United States. Uh, it was in full, it was full blown at this point, but that's just a monster, monster, monster record. Um, but really, when you look at the Billboard charts, this year was owned by the Monkees. Um, they had four different albums top the chart, and they spent 29 of the 52 weeks at the top of the Billboard charts with their albums. So, really monster year um for the monkeys um some other big events that happened throughout 67 january 14th 67 was the human being um featuring the grateful dead jefferson airplane um, big brother quicksilver all in san francisco also timothy leary you have you know kind of this big psychedelic fest um in san fran march 25th the who played their first concert in the united states so big event for loud, massive rock bands coming in. Um, May 1st, Paul McCartney reveals that the Beatles, all of them, have dropped acid, which is an interesting moment. Um, and then Sgt. Peppers comes out a month later, and it's like, yeah, obviously they've all done acid. <laughs> um, um, June 16th to 18th is the Monterey Pop Festival. So kind of the precursor to Woodstock in many ways. The Dead played there. Um, so did tons of other legends of the time, including the aforementioned who um, September 17th, the doors famously infamously appear on Ed Sullivan and are subsequently banned from the Ed Sullivan show for not censoring themselves. Girl, we couldn't get much higher. That was just way too controversial. Um, <laughs> way too controversial. Yeah. 51, no 53 years before wet ass pussy. So <laughs> a, a different time for sure. <laughs> Um, to be clear, no shade thrown at, at that song at WAP. Um, no. The door shouldn't have been censored in their time, and WAP shouldn't be censored in its time. Just saying, you know, we've come a long way in that in that <laughs> regard. Um, so other albums released in '67. There are a ton. Uh, Jimi Hendrix, two. Are you experienced? And Axis Bold as Love, his two greatest studio works for sure. Both came out in '67. Uh, the Who Sell Out, which is a weird record, but a, an interesting one and and one that I think stands the test of time. Right before they ripped off their, you know, virtuosic run of Tommy and then Who's Next and then Quadrophenia. Um, Pink Floyd, Piper at the Gates of Dawn, uh, the Sid Barrett helmed record of theirs. The Velvet Underground and Nico. That's a that's a classic with the um, Andy Warhol drawing on the cover of the banana. Um, the Doors, The Doors, and someone who just was on TV to celebrate the New Year yesterday. Um, Hello, I'm Dolly, the debut album of Dolly Parton. So, speaking of which, quick side note: Dolly Parton wore a Grateful Dead shirt on the um, New Year's Eve show. I know, in her performance with Miley, she had a Grateful Dead shirt on, which was really really cool. 
Yeah. So go Dolly. I know that um, it's interesting. You can, there are a couple of interviews with Jerry Garcia where he talks about how high he was on her, how Dolly Parton, there's one, an interview in I think 72 where the interviewer said, who's your favorite musician out there today? And he was like, Dolly Parton, have you heard this album? And the person was like, no, I haven't. He was like, okay, I'll roll a joint. And they, they smoked a joint and listened to the entire album and then got back to the interview. (laughs) So a mutual admiration society, both ways between Dolly and the dead. So yeah, 67, I mean, interesting, interesting year in music. Don't you think there's a lot of kind of genres bubbling up to the surface and you have this big psychedelic push when, when we just talked about all those records that came out, all those artists. Um, But there's also things happening the variety of what psychedelic music could be is very, very broad at this point in time. Yeah. And only going to get bigger. I mean, this is not the peak. I mean, it could be an objective peak looking back on it and saying, this is the, the best it got, but this is the, the beginning of a wave that's going to crash over America in the next five to eight years of just a psychedelic push. Well, to quote the first song in this album, nobody's finished, Wayne even begun. Um, <laughs> right. 67 is the summer of love in San Francisco. And, you know, that hadn't even started by the time this album was released. So um, you're you're completely right about that. Rock, rock and roll music, rock music is a big tent. It fits a lot of different styles, a lot of different voices. Um, but at this point in time, psychedelic rock music was a big tent. There was a lot going in there. Like Sgt. Pepper's is... is a psychedelic album axis bold as love is a psychedelic album they sound nothing like each other um <laughs> or then like the doors with that heavy organ right being right up front um so and then this album obviously so there's there's a lot of variety going on um so let's talk about this album like i said released march 17th 1967 it was produced by a guy named david hassinger um he was already a grammy winning recording artist coming into these sessions but not for rock music weirdly he won grammy for um best novel recording approaches or something like that for alvin and the chipmunks sing the beatles hits so that's kind of weird (laughs) Um, okay his job previous to this one was as the producer for the rolling stones from 64 to 66 he produced four of their records and a number of singles um, and then he met Jerry while producing Surrealistic Pillow for Jefferson Airplane in November of 66. Jerry played on that record um, and was a, really a driving force in it. Um, he's credited with the, the title of the album. Oh, wow. Um, he said it's as surrealistic or it's as surreal as a pillow or something like that. And um, they loved it. They were like, oh, cool. So Jerry met him then and recommended him for this project. And uh, it seems like Warner Brothers was all for it. They were like, cool, a a real producer to help this band kind of get across the finish line. He also produced Anthem of the Sun, um, but he quit that project before it was completed. We can talk about that when we get to that album. (laughs) Um, This record was mostly, almost entirely, recorded at RCA in Hollywood, Studio A at RCA between January 30th and February 3rd of 1967. So then released about six weeks later. So it was largely recorded Monday through Friday, mixed on Saturday, and then it was in the can and ready for Warner Brothers to release. Wow. Um, Yeah, I know. Things happened a lot faster back then. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, 
the golden road the lead lead track on the on the record was recorded later in february at coastal recorders and by all accounts it took many more takes than the other songs which i think you can hear um when you listen to it um how was it received well by the band both bill and phil talk about feeling disappointed in it um in their books they i think they didn't like how it sounded but they also didn't like the process so phil said that the process was rushed he didn't like how quickly it all happened he thought that they needed to take more time with it and bill said that because they were inexperienced quote we just weren't that good yet so kind of different feelings um and it's interesting when you read about what happened with anthem of the sun phil was like antagonistic toward this david hassinger and basically was like we are going to take as much time as we possibly can and we're going to get this right uh whereas bill was more i guess you know, easy come, easy go at that point. But Phil was really kind of a, a pain in the ass during the next album. And I think that that's a direct reflection of his kind of lukewarm feelings about this one. Um, National reception, it really only got airplay in San Francisco. It didn't crack into the national radio um, play. Um, it actually did not get a vinyl re-release until 2011 for record store day. Um, and then it was remastered in, in 2017 for its 50th anniversary. And it was, um, in 2007, it was included on Rolling Stones top 40 albums of 1967, um, which is, you know, 40 albums. That is a lot, but it's still impressive because as we talked about, and I, I just gave some of the highlights, this was a really, really good year for music. Um, so that's kind of the story of the album. Anything to add, Dave, before we get into the songs? No, nothing to add. Let's dive in. Um, we right. talked about the first track already, The Golden Road to Unlimited Devotion. Right. So um, I guess before we get into that song specifically, I should well, we, we should say that there are nine tracks on this record. It's about 36 minutes long. So kind of a classic EP. Um, LP? EP? I feel like I just messed that up. No, EP is an extended play. It's a full album. Right. LP is like a shorter album. No, I think you have those mixed up. Did I just flip that? Yeah. Okay. I think an LP is like a full full on record. I think you're right. I think I just messed that up. An EP is like maybe like one or two tracks on each right. side. Okay. So apologies on, on this <laughs> on this record. Um it's got a cool, cool cover. The album art's weird and um I dig it. Um, are you looking at it on your screen, I'm, Dave? I'm looking at it right now. Yeah. Um, do you want to paint a visual picture for a picture with your words for the people <laughs> who are not looking at it? Sure. So you got what looks like Jerry and the uncle Sam hat. You got the rest of the band around him at the bottom of the bottom of the picture at the top. There's just the in blue and yellow text, um, painting, the Grateful Dead with the Warner Brother logo. And then in the middle is where it gets really interesting. You've got some kind of like sea creature, sea monster hatching from an egg while also simultaneously there's like a nuclear explosion going on in the background. Well, Morning Dew uh, is on this album. Yeah, true. So um, a, an interesting mix there. But um, what I don't understand is why Jerry is on there twice. He's both like at the bottom of the picture with the rest of the band. And then he's next to the sea monster 
as well in the middle. Well, Phil and Pigpen are both also on it twice. So in the bottom left, Phil's there two times. And then oh. Pigpen is on the other side of the statue and he's also at the bottom. So the only guys who aren't on there twice are Billy, who is kind of tucked behind Jerry at the bottom center of the record, and Bob, <laughs> who's all by himself on the right <laughs> side with this like kind of space, like almost like warp speed looking image to the right. Yeah. So it's a yeah, it's a weird, weird thing. At the top of the album. It says, um, in the land of the dark, the ship of the sun is drawn by the Grateful Dead. It's a passage from the Egyptian Book of the Dead. Um, so, yeah, it's weird. That's not where the band got their name from, but it is kind of cool that it says the Grateful Dead. Um, and then the the statue, the sea monster looking thing, is a 12th century sculpture of Yoga Narasimha, um, an avatar of Vishnu. So, yeah, interesting, interesting album art. Uh, it, coincidentally, that statue lives in Kansas City, where you just were for Christmas. So you no could have gone and seen it. Yeah, um, I should have made a trip out. Yeah. So very interesting album cover. It's a bit of a hodgepodge, um, but it's it's kind of cool. It's also kind of fitting of the time when when you look at a lot of like the beach boys monkeys the kinks those types of albums um they are kind of lo-fi from this era and this album cover is no different (laughs) um all right so track list like you said the first song the golden road to unlimited devotion so um aka the golden road they only played this song about 10 times live and of those 10 times you only have two of them recorded so really this episode is probably going to be our only chance to talk about this song because the odds of us talking about one of those two shows are pretty slim. They were on um, March 18th of this year, 1967. And then um, on Cinco de Mayo, five, five, 67 are the only two recordings that we have of this track. What do you think about this song? I think this is like a time capsule of 1967. Um, When you listen to the song, 50 years later i mean it doesn't really sound like the grateful dead but it sounds like that time period got captured into a two and a half minute song um just like a song about you know singing and dancing and you know love i mean summer of love is coming up it's a song about you know everybody love everybody and um you got the backing vocals which i think are indicative of the time too where like the backing vocals are as loud as the lead singer yeah Um, that's true what about you what do you think about this one i totally agree i feel like the lyrics of this song are san francisco 1967 incarnate um i do want to read a couple of them because they're like you said it's just so san francisco of this era it starts with see that girl barefooting along whistling and a singing she's a carrying on there's laughing in her eyes, dancing in her feet. She's a neon light diamond. She can live on the street. So very already like barefoot hippie dancing and singing along. She can live on the street in San Francisco. No one's really going to bother her. Mm-hmm. I mean, okay, we're already there. And then the second <laughs> verse um, starts with, well, everybody's dancing in a ring around the sun. Nobody's finished. We ain't even begun. Um. Yeah, I mean... First of all, dancing in a ring around the sun—that's literally the cover of the last Dave's picks. 
if you yeah, remember it is. correctly. Yeah. So yeah, it's yeah. some kind of something fitting about those two bookends of their first release and now their latest release as we're talking about this, both involving a ring around the sun, dancing in a ring around the sun. Um, but nobody's finished We Ain't Even Begun. I don't think that even they would have known how true that would be, given that now here we are um, 56 years later still talking about this record. Um, yeah, I, I do think that this song is very evocative of the time in the sound too. Like you said, with the mix and the background vocals being as loud as the lead vocals, but also that droney organ being the first sound that you hear. Yeah. I went back and listened to the doors, um, the doors, mm-hmm. the doors, their eponymous album that also came out this year. It came out a couple months before this one in January and the organ sound is different there. Um, slightly, it's not like, you know, night and day, but it is different. Um, I think that they're probably the most famous organ band of this era, you know, given that they, it was such a focal point of their sound. Um, And so I do think that that is also kind of cool where you, you have that sound, which is consistent between the doors and now the dead, but also the first Jerry solo that we get is like really kind of distorted and feedbacky. Mm-hmm. There's really nice rhythmic underpinning from Bobby, but it's that what Bobby's doing underneath it is not, it's like anything but typical. It's so odd. And so from the very first track of this record, it's like, these guys are weird and I like it. (laughs) You know, they're different. (laughs) It does. I see what you're saying about like, it doesn't sound like the Grateful Dead. It sounds more like a, like a different band would have done this. Yeah. But there's enough when you really, you know, you focus on the details and the intricacies where you're like, this is very, very grateful dead. Phil and Bob are such unusual players and that shines with what they're doing on this version. But then there's also a perfectly dead conclusion to the song where it's just like feedback that melts away into the ooze. Yeah. And like that kind of off key chord that they go with um, to end it. Yeah. Yeah. Very weird. Very grateful dead. Yeah. Totally. So again, they only played this one 10 times live. Um, it didn't stay, didn't stick around in the songbook for very long. I honestly don't know why it's a good song. I, I was just going to ask you, do you know why they really didn't bust it out? There are a couple on this record that didn't stick around and I have theories, but I, I don't know with this one. I, I genuinely have no idea. The next song did stick around. Um, it's beat it on down the line. They played that song 344 times between um, February of 66 and, um, October of 94, the longest gap that they ever took from this song in that run was 175 shows between 68 and 69. Other than that, they were playing it constantly. Yeah. Um, this is also kind of an interesting one because what Jerry is doing, it's like surf rock. Like it sounds like almost like what he's doing is like beach boy ish. It sounds like it could be on the Beach Boys. Yeah. And um, including like the screen, there's like a Bobby scream around 125. That's very like that song Wipeout. Like mm-hmm. the, they're, these like surfer songs of this era where there's like that, like kind of that enthusiasm coming through. I just feel like this song is kind of in that genre, which is interesting because that is not what it sounds like when they play it live for the balance no. of, of its of its life with them. Also kind of weird that on a studio recording, Bob's vocals are like way tuned down yeah. or way toned down, like way quiet in the mix. Um, I just thought that was 
interesting. Like the benefit of the studio recording is you get to master all the levels, but I mean, I don't know if it was on purpose or not. They were, they only, they were, it only took four or five days. So maybe they overlooked it, but it is weird how comparatively to the rest of the album, his singing is noticeably quiet in this song. They had to crank up Phil's vocal when he's doing like his sexiest possible voice for the (laughs) happy home. (laughs) That part. <laughs> if you ever want to hear uh, Phil whispering sweet nothings to you, just go go to like this that, one on. Yeah, that time yeah. um around like 150 or two minutes of him doing his happy home backing vocals. Um there's also a really aggressive tambourine in the back end of the song that that comes in hot. So um it doesn't really appear on the rest of the record, but <laughs> someone was just crushing it on a tambourine for this this track. Uh, the next song is Good Morning Little Schoolgirl. So we like their shows of this era. We have the each of the different singers giving us one um, off the bat. So you got Jerry, then Bobby, then Pig. Um, so they played the song 89 times. Almost all were pre-71 with Pigpen, but then they also brought it back nine times in the 80s and 90s with Bob singing it. Um, so this song did have a pretty long life with the band, Uh not shockingly, they took a, a big break from it when Pigpen died. Um, but I think this is a pretty good recording of this song. I, I think that this is a high point of of the record. What do you think, Dave? I agree with you. I think the harmonica is awesome. The groovy bass is good. Yeah, I agree. Of the first three songs, I think this one stands out compared to the other two. Stands out in which way? Overall or like? Like crispness of playing. Mm-hmm. Um it just sounds a little it sounds like they have it more figured out than the other two yeah it seems more true to them in a way to me yeah I think. maybe because beat it on down the line sounds pretty different from how we are used to hearing it and we'd never that hear could be. golden road and so yeah. this one is like more of what it sounded like when they actually played it which makes it sound more more authentic authentic yeah yeah um the next song is another one that stuck around forever uh cold rain and snow so they played this one 253 times all the way through their final tour in 95. Um, coincidentally, the last time it was played, it opened set one and was followed by Good Morning Little Schoolgirl. Yeah, flip. I did a little I did a little research project. I was going to surprise you with this at the end, but I looked at the 95 tour to see how many of these songs they played in their mm-hmm. last tour to see how many of them endured. And that, that one caught my eye, the back-to-back um, songs of this this record being played in 95 i was like wow yeah it's really interesting cool. yeah um so what do you think about this recording i like it i don't love it um i like how they morphed this live into more of a upbeat but dark opener and yeah it's just kind of it's a little flat to me in the studio version um I don't, I don't love it, but I, I love what it would become. Yeah. This I is agree. one of my favorite openers to a show is cold rain and snow. Um, and it's cool to hear how it started, but, um, I, I like how they morphed it as they did. I, I completely agree. I think that this is far from the best foot forward they could put with this song, but it makes sense that they would hone it as time right. went by. Um, but yeah, there's something about, there's a little bit more depth to the sound, the way that they played it live in the ensuing years compared to this version. 
Um, so yeah, I'm with you. We are already running low on time, so we're going to keep it moving. Uh, sitting on top of the world is the next track. Uh, they only played this song 46 times before they retired it. They retired it, um, after Europe 72, it, they played it the final night of Europe 72 and then never again. Um, <laughs> So this begins a segment of songs where I have the same problem with pretty much all of them. The outro solo is when it sounds like they're starting to get cooking and then it just like get that classic sixties fade out. Yeah. Um, so (laughs) I think that this is a really good performance. I, one of my notes is bill the drummer because he's, he's crushing it on this song. Um, it's also one of Jerry's best vocal performances of the album, I think, but Mm -hmm right as they get cooking we get that like you're saying the classic fade out which is kind of a bummer and then we get the same thing on like the next four songs so yeah. uh that's kind of a bummer to me and that's kind of where i can see like why they wouldn't be happy with this sounding not like what they sounded like at the time right um speaking of lesser known songs cream puff war is up next um, a song that they didn't play a lot live. Uh, you talked about sitting on top of the world. They stopped it for 72. This one, they stopped after 67. They played it. It was the last one I could find it. Yeah. April 67 was the last time. Only played it 10 times live. Um, so the same exact number as golden road. I, I do have a theory about why this one, they didn't play live very much. Although this is a really cool song that I like. It is a cool. Lot. Um, there, it's a really complicated song. There are a lot of changes. There are a lot of like intricate little segments, which reminds me of St. Stephen. And a lot of their earlier songs are kind of like that. And I think that that was what they didn't like about St. Stephen is that there are so many different parts to it that it became kind of difficult to do live. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I feel like that's what's going on here. But I really like this song. There's a lot of Bobby screaming on it, which I actually dig. And uh, my biggest problem is that again, it feels like they're just getting cooking when we fade away. Yeah. So I completely agree. Yeah. Kind of a bummer. Um, another song that's cut right before the crescendo is next morning Dew. So this one obviously stayed within their repertoire for a very long time. Um, this song was the one that they played. I think the second most of any song on this, no third most of any song on this record. Um, 277 times between the day after this album was released, 318.67, and June 21st, Summer Solstice of 1995. The longest gap that they ever did between performances of Morning Dew was 112 shows between 78 and 79. So I am not crazy about this rendition of Morning Dew. What do you think about it? I really liked it. I thought the emotion of the song came through well on Jerry's vocals. Um, the The big problem is once again they fade out at the kind of ripping solo at the end but i thought jerry's singing i thought this was his vocal highlight of the album and i thought the like pig pen organ flourishes here were crisp and well done so i i enjoyed this album version i totally agree with you about that the organ is great i think that um bill and phil are just like pretty laid back in the cut holding it down throughout this song but they shine through really like big time in the last 30 seconds or so I agree with you that as the song goes along, it builds to a really nice emotional place and that Jerry's voice gets better as it goes. But my issue is like the first minute and a half of the song, I think it sounds more like they are presenting this song for a record label's consideration than they're actually trying to capture what this song really is. Jerry's voice Mm -hmm. sounds a little bit different. It sounds like he's really trying really hard to sing 
rather than just like letting the emotion come out the way that I like versions of morning do. And I think that the more comfortable they got within the song, the better it got as the song went along. But that beginning part, I just, I didn't like, (laughs) because this is such an emotional song. It's so resonant. And when, when you hear like the really emotional versions, like the one um, from the Lyceum in Europe 72, where Jerry's crying as he's playing it, this one just really doesn't hold a candle to that um, at the beginning. Again, I agree with you. By the end, I think that they're in there. Do you remember during when we were in law school during <laughs> m- m- oh, during moot courts, a common thing that people tell you is like, you got comfortable, but if you can just start being that comfortable, it'll yes. be great. Yep. Um, like your first two minutes, you're very stiff, but that's then kinda, you get kind of natural when you start public speaking more and more. Yeah. Right. That's kind of how I feel about this one. I feel like they got into it. It didn't take long. It took like a minute or a minute and a half. But that first minute is enough for me to to take it down a peg, personally. Um, so, you know, your mileage may vary. Yeah. Second to last song on the album, and the one that they played the most times live of any track here, is New New Minglewood Blues. <laughs> um, played 436 times from 66 to 95. Uh, so there are two really long gaps between them playing New Minglewood, which is crazy because they did play it in almost a quarter of their shows. From 67 to 69, they didn't play it. And that meant 273 shows off because they were playing so much. (laughs) Um, And then again, from 71 to 76, they didn't play it. And that was 270 shows. Um, So that kind of goes to show how much they were playing in the late 60s. That the the span of two years in the 60s equaled the same number of shows as 71 to 76. Um, This song song was also re-recorded and re-released as all new Minglewood Blues for Shakedown Street in Mm -hmm. 78 i think this one may be the most different sound of any track on the album not just like the lyrics are different from the ones we're used to but just the sound is so different um and you are our certified minglewood head so why don't you tell us what you think i mean i like it it i think it's kind of that jerry and bob are like doing the same thing like there's kind of one guitar part and that naturally sounds different when you're in a two guitarist band but yeah there's just something about it it's a little crunchier um bob kind of sounds like he's reaching a little more and vocally for this one but i mean i i enjoyed it it's it's a change up i prefer i do prefer the shakedown version the all new uh title and lyrics and style but um this album version is is quite nice and it's a cool change from like the emotion that's kind of now flowing out of morning dew and now it's a a cool pivot to kind of this more not not quite a screaming rocker that bob would become but kind of getting into that alley yeah yeah that makes sense when i say it's different it's not that i don't like it i do it's just it's just very different yeah it's um i think you're right though the way that it fits in between morning dew and the last song is is nice and it is you're right it is like an entree into bob in his role as the band's screaming rocker um so yeah nice nice version of new minglewood last song on the album viola lee blues um so they played this song only 54 times live they retired it after halloween of 1970 it's been brought back now um by dead and company um my only note for this one was ladies and gentlemen the grateful dead yeah and this this is like the song that is most like them as a band i think totally um 
it's 10 minutes so it's a nice long jam all the other songs are quite short under three minutes except for good morning little school girl which is almost six um but other than that it's short short tight oh and morning dew which is five um but other than that it's short short and then you get a nice long jam to close out the record um and just a some great playing yeah from everybody totally there's the moment at the end when they come back it's like the third verse and the fourth verse are the same basically they repeat the same verse one last time um i wanted to like applaud when they they went from that big jam and then they took it down a more mellow route into that last verse um i was like god this is so great this is what these guys are so good at is going from this big jam sprawling it's massive and then take you right down um i also was thinking about that quote that we talked about in an episode i think the one about the 80s about jerry telling billy he was like you can't like send the people home in like a frenzied state you got to give them a more mellow ending yeah um and they're in this like frenzied frenetic jam and then they take it down and make it more mellow and end the album on a more mellow note I mean, overall, I think it's a really good record, and we are now overtime. This is going to be a WP and forty, um, <laughs> but that's okay. We we have some stuff to talk about with this album, obviously. Um, right. But I, I I think this is a, a really good album. I think it's a a great debut record. Um, it's kind of a bummer that it didn't get more radio play, but hey, these guys ended up doing all right. Yeah, <laughs> so um, that's okay. Uh, I'm going to ask you your typical question at the end. What song would you take from this album? Before I answer that, I I put together a little project for you. I just wanted to look at, in the 1995 tour, their last tour, how many of these songs endured and got played. Golden Road and Cream Puff War, I didn't count because they like only played them 10 times. They just, they didn't really play them anyway, let alone be playing them later on in their career. Um, So they didn't play Beat It On Down The Line in 95. They didn't play Sitting On Top Of The World and they didn't play Viola Lee, but they played Good Morning Little School Girl five times. Cold Rain and Snow three times, Morning Dew four times, and New Minglewood five times, um, including the one that you talked about, the back-to-back Cold Rain and Snow, Good Morning Little School Girl. Um, so I just thought that was so neat that, you yeah, know, almost five half- Five nine songs. Yeah. Yeah. In- endure the test of time. Um, and I just thought that, that was so neat. Um, what song am I taking with? I think it's got to be Viola Lee. It's just like, it's the standout best- you know, best, best performance, I think. And then it just totally captures what they're doing and what they would do live the best on the album. What about you? First of all, that's the correct first pick. <laughs> <laughs> if you hadn't taken that first, I would have taken it first, but because you did, I'll take the oh. other bookend. I'll take the golden road just because it's not one that we virtually ever get to hear We're a live here. recording of. Yeah. And it's their first song on their first album. It's just a hell of a statement. Um, Like we said, it's so indicative of what was happening in their world at the time. And so it's kind of a perfect little time capsule song. I'm glad that it exists. I'm glad that they put it on wax. So go ahead. No, I was just, I was going to wrap it up because we are over time. Apologies, but you get a a free 10 minutes to start the new year. Um, And to start the new year, we're going to be talking about two fun shows um, coming up in January. First, on the anniversary, January 17th, 1968. And then a couple weeks later, um, at the end of January, we're going to talk about a fun show from summer 1984, 
Um, and if you don't know that show, just by hearing that date, just three words for you, Scarlet Touch Fire. <laughs> so I'm excited to talk about those two. As am I. And if you're excited to hear about them, then you know, follow us or subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. Uh, check us out on Instagram and Twitter. We're not hard to find. Go track us down. And on that note, we will bid you good night and happy new year. That's it. That's it. You got it.